Frontline inherently believes that our customer is the entrepreneur, not the people who give us money, but the people who we give the money to. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Pratish Sanyal, and you are listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. My next guest on The 1% Project is William McQuillan. William is a founding partner of Frontline Ventures. Frontline Venture is an early stage venture capital fund with 250 million euros under management with 100 plus investments in Europe and the US. William was the youngest founding partner of a VC in Europe when Frontline was set up. In this conversation, he talks about the reason he wears a square and a circular spectacle. Why should one build a firm's brand versus a personal brand? the reasons and the differences between raising a fund in the US versus Europe and how that correlates with the Asian landscape and what were his key findings from the gender study that Frontline Ventures did recently. Welcome, William, to The 1% Project. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's start off with a very obvious question, your circular and square spectacles and your fascination of dressing up. So... Why is that and how that has been a part of your personality and how has that worked into your work life? Uh, thank you for starting with that. I think with, well, let's start with the glasses since that's what you started with. My mom is an optician and so I grew up when I finished school often going to my mom's glasses shop to sit down and do my homework on the side. And, and, and so I guess I've always had lots of glasses around me, lots of different types. My mom, she loves quirky glasses Unfortunately, her optician is in quite a conservative kind of straight laced area of Dublin where, where I grew up. And so not many people go for the kind of slightly odd or quirky or crazy glasses. Um, but she always had this small shelf on, in her shop of like one was like a flamingo. One was like guitars or whatever. And she probably would sell one of those a year or something. But, but she loved those. And so I always kind of grew up with the idea that glasses aren't just a functional Thing, but they can actually be a kind of a semi-fashion accessory. And for me with the square and circle, it is very much that. Although it's relatively subtle because there's no clear frame around the glass, yeah. it's distinctive enough that many people remember it. And I see it as a kind of a fun entry point to conversations. I would say at least one in three conversations I start with people, they start with me asking me about my glasses. And then it, it's an easy entry point. It's a lower barrier to entry for a conversation. And and for me in a job in venture capital, it's all about building networks. At least I believe it is. So much of it is about building the right networks that anything I can do to create easier networking or better networking, I'm happy to do as long, within reason. And for me, I do need glasses. So this is a double function. It, it, it actually helps me see too. So yeah. And then, and then you asked about the costumes. I don't know. Since I've been a kid, I've loved a fancy dress or, or dressing up in costumes. I don't know exactly where it started. I mean, Halloween originally started in Ireland. So as a holiday, uh, Ireland started Halloween. It was originally a, a kind of a, a pagan festival, and uh, our Celtic festival. And, and so dressing up was always just something we did as kids every single year for Halloween. And then I think it just grew from there that I, I enjoy particularly dressing up as some pretty quirky things. For any of your listeners who 
want, they probably could go to my Instagram. There's probably a bunch of different outfits if you scroll through the different years of Halloween time. And I, I just enjoy it. I think it's a fun, creative way to just have a bit of fun. Yeah. Let's talk about your journey building Frontline Ventures, right? Where you started off and where you are at and how has that journey been? So a good broad question. I would say how we started is maybe uh, uh, the best place to, to begin with that. So myself, Will and Shay, who are the three kind of founding partners of Frontline, we each came from, from different angles on it. Shay had been in another venture capital fund where he had seen a venture capital fund build over 15 to 20 years and see how, although it started the way he wanted, it didn't end the way he wanted. And he felt that he wanted to start a new firm that had more longevity to it. Will came from the background where he had been, he was also a VC, but he had been exposed to the US through a thing called the Kaufman Fellows, which is like kind of like an executive MBA program for venture capitalists. And he had been exposed to a lot of the new things that US venture funds were doing. And that, that had made him aware that actually a lot of that was missing in Europe. And we can talk maybe more details about what specifically are those things that are missing. And then from my side, I came from the entrepreneur side. I had started a company. I had raised money for it. And I had experienced the venture capital ecosystem in Europe. And, and then as well as that, I was part of a network called Sandbox. And Sandbox was over a thousand at the time, over a thousand young entrepreneurs all around the world. And when I would hear stories about the entrepreneurs in Europe raising their financing and the entrepreneurs in the US raising their financing, it was often two very different stories. And we felt like the, the service offering for an entrepreneur was just not equal here. And, and, you know, similar to many entrepreneurs, they see a gap in the market. We felt that there was a gap in the market. Most VC funds in Europe at the time, this was back in 2012, 13, they designed their venture capital funds with their customer being their investors. Whereas Frontline inherently believes that our customer is the entrepreneur, not the people who give us money, but the people who we give the money to. And they're our customers in our mind. When you switch the view of those two customers, you start to build a very different venture capital fund. And, and that was really inherently uh, the crux of why we started Frontline, what gap we felt was in the market. And, and again, that was back in 2012, 13. I would say that it was it was a pretty difficult time to raise money in Europe. There wasn't a lot of capital available. Most pension funds didn't invest in VCs. Most uh, there aren't really many endowments in Europe, which is a big part of venture capital in the US. A lot of family offices were pretty hesitant to invest in VC as a strategy. So government played a decent part. The Irish government was one of our first investors, and 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 then we were able to get. Thankfully, we were able to get a bank, two pension funds, several self-made kind of billionaire family offices, and that. But the, it sounds like that when I say it, it sounds very quick. From mm. the point of when we started fundraising to the point of when we'd raised our first full 50 million fund, that probably took almost two years. But thankfully, we, we were able to, one of our investors, a guy called Declan Ryan, he was one of the founders of Ryanair. He basically said to us early on, like, Look, you need to be in the market. So he, the money he was putting into the fund, he allowed us to use upfront to start making investments. And that allowed us to start before we had all the money, which was amazing for us and amazing that we had his support to do that. But that allowed us to get things going. But effectively, to have our first full fund, it took us two years really to get all the money. Um, and then thankfully, with the second fund, we raised it in about six months. And that was, that was a 60 million euro fund. And then, and then for our third fund, which we just raised, that's a 70 million euro seed fund. And that again, that one it was a bit faster again. So I think, thankfully, as we prove ourselves more, as Europe proves itself more as a, an area, we've been able to raise funds in a more efficient way. Um, the other thing is we raised a growth fund last year. Now, um, many VC funds raise growth funds. And the idea is mm -hmm. that they raise them because they are investing in all their early stage companies. And the growth fund then it gets proprietary access to that. We actually took a different approach where our growth fund 
doesn't invest in European companies. It actually invests in the top tier US companies. And so uh, that fund is specifically designed around helping US companies expand into Europe. And again, going back to the way we design our funds is around the problems entrepreneurs face. We thought, how, how can Frontline, a, a small seed fund in Europe, get into some of the top, top growth deals in the US? And we looked mm. at who were the entrepreneurs, what were the key challenges they had. And one of the key challenges was expansion into Europe. And a lot of US VCs did not have experience with that. And so we thought that's a good angle that we can build experience and we can hire a team around. And so we did that. And again, when we think about the entrepreneurs, that was a problem. And that's now allowed us to get into some of these top, top tier deals in the US. And then on the seed side, how that's evolved is, again, a lot about international expansion, being able to move quickly. And really, again, when you think about what an entrepreneur wants, they don't want to waste time fundraising. They want somebody who's supportive of them, not you know overbearing on them. They want someone who can help them with their key challenges. And again, we constantly are reviewing with our entrepreneurs what are the key challenges they face across our whole portfolio to try and understand that. Um, so that's a, a long answer to maybe a slightly broad question, but that's kind of what brought us to here today. And, and I think absolutely our driving force as a fund is our customer is the entrepreneur and how can we constantly be providing a better service or product offering to them. You have an observation about uh, European versus the US LPs, specifically about family offices and why yeah. the family offices in the US are relatively easier to work with or raise funds with compared to Europe at least five years ago. So can you just expand on that? And what do you see the difference was or is? Yeah, and look, I can't answer this question without slightly stereotyping. but, But on a broad level, this is what we have seen. And I've spoken to many family kind of wealth managers who have kind of confirmed this same thing to me. But effectively, when I'm in, when I go to meet family offices in the U.S., Usually, there are, of course, some exceptions, but because the U.S. is a relatively new country compared to Europe, most family offices I meet in the U.S. are two degrees away from where the money's made. And that means, Pratesh, if I meet you in your family office in New York, Boston, San Francisco, Texas, wherever it is, either you made the money, your parents made the money, or your grandparents mm-hmm. made the money. Usually, right? For the vast, vast majority of U.S. kind of wealthy family offices. And what that means is that you either built something yourself grew up seeing your parents build something or grew up hearing about how your grandparents built something, right? And, and, and them telling you directly what it was like to build something. Um, once you start going past two degrees away, people stop understanding directly what it was like to build something. And then their portfolio strategies often change quite a lot. So people who've been within two degrees away from where money is made, usually their portfolio strategy is all about capital creation. They have a certain amount of wealth that they're managing and they want to build on that wealth, create more wealth because Mm. that's the DNA that they grew up with that either they did themselves, they grew up with or they grew up hearing about. Now in Europe, there are of course family offices within two degrees and that's where almost all the family offices that, in fact, all of the family offices that Frontline have in our uh, funds are within two degrees. So there are of Mm. course those family offices in Europe, but a huge amount of the family offices in Europe are more likely to be five to 10 degrees away from where the money yeah. is made. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no judgment or anything like that. But those people, because they are much less attached to the capital creation of, of how the wealth originally was built, what you tend to find is that their portfolio strategy or their investment strategy is not capital creation. It's capital preservation. preservation. They have a a large pool of capital that they inherited or came with their family. 
And their goal is to make sure that their kids and their kids' kids continue to have the same lifestyle that they have. And, and, and again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that strategy. It's a very viable investment strategy. But if you have that strategy, venture capital is a risky asset class. And you're much less likely to want to put capital towards venture capital um, because we're about creation of capital or losing it in the sense of a venture capital fund is either going to be very successful or it might even lose money, right? And that's a very risky strategy for a, a capital preservation portfolio, whereas that is a perfect fit for a capital creation portfolio, mm. that they're willing to take risk to, to potentially make money. And so that's why I think that that's one of the things we've seen is that a lot of European family offices are, are not used to investing in assets like venture capital. And hopefully, as venture capital in Europe continues to prove itself, as as people hear more about big companies being created in Europe, I think you're starting to see families wanting to get more and more access to what is an exciting asset class. So there's the kind of the the FOMO is starting to happen and we are seeing more of those family offices change their investment strategy or at least some of their capital being put towards these riskier assets. So hopefully it will continue to evolve, but but let's see. At least that's a, a, a very interesting trend which I wouldn't have thought of before I started Frontline but now I've kind of seen continuously over the last eight to 10 years. Yeah, I think that's a reduction. And you probably can extrapolate that to Asia, specifically mainland China, like how aggressive they are about actually investing in venture capitals or yeah. getting becoming a part of it, because they're one or two generations away from where the wealth was made, right? Yeah. So they're less, I would say they're less risk averse and potentially they're, the people, the second or third generation, which is investing into venture capital funds from Asia have seen or learned about wealth creation almost one or two degrees away. So yep. I think that extrapolation actually potentially is a similar thought process within Asia as well. Yeah, and there's, there's certain, something I just should caveat is that sometimes when I've said this uh, kind of debate or discussion or, or viewpoint, some people think I'm critiquing old money versus new money. That's not the point of this conversation. It's more just that what you're seeing is a trend of, of, of portfolio strategies, depending on the type of family offices yeah. they are. And, and one of those investment strategies is much more suited to invest in venture capital than the other. And so it's more of a view to that than anything else. Obviously, I am biased. I would love everyone to be investing in venture capital. But, but that is definitely a very biased view. You will build a brand as a firm or as an individual? Yeah, this is something that I, I debate with people a lot. What's interesting is that it's one of the, I think, the, it's one of the most kind of common debates that I have had with other GPs or where, when I say most common debates, it's not that we talk about it all the time, but it's the most common where it's a polarizing view in venture capital, right? You know, most venture capital funds from an operational, marketing, et cetera perspective are relatively similar. But when it comes to this, I have had dinner where I've had eight venture capitalists around a table and it's been split 50-50 where, and it's people usually have very strong views one way or the other. Should a venture capitalist focus on building their personal brand or should we focus on building our firm brand? And for me, although I'm on a podcast with you now, which is in part building my personal brand, um, the reality is that in Frontline, we very much have the view of the firm brand. And, and the reason for that is a few things. So first of all, at that same dinner that I talked about, the eight, the eight people were on the table, I specifically said, okay, how many partners, so does everyone agree around the table that Sequoia is one of the best firms in the world? And, and everyone was like, yes, it was pretty clear that there at least, it, it, people may disagree about the best, best firm in the world, but everyone will put Sequoia in their top three to five for sure. Yeah. And so I said, okay, 
name me three or two partners at Sequoia, right? And it was amazing. These are eight venture capitalists. These are people who are in the industry who've just agreed that this is one of the best firms in the world. And I got one name from the eight people. Yeah. And that's a testament to Sequoia building one of the strongest, if not the strongest, firm brands and not putting enormous pressure to build individual brands. Obviously, inherently, people build individual brands because of their performance and because it... But, but Sequoia is a great example of firm brand over individual brand. On the flip side of that, I then started asking people, can you tell me what firm Mark Suster, Brad Feld, etc. work for? And okay, people did were able to guess it around the table, but I know that a lot of people didn't know that answer, right? They all knew who mm. they were. They all knew that they were very fam- famous venture capitalists, but they didn't know what their venture capital firm... It's kind of like if I ask most people, what's Mark Cuban's venture capital firm, right? They all know who Mark Cuban is. And so I think that I'm a believer that uh, if... Put it this way. If I only wanted Frontline to, to exist for my lifetime, then I would focus it all around building my and maybe one of the other founding partners' personal brands, right? But if I want Frontline to be a multi-generational firm that, that evolves and grows over time, we believe that firm brand is substantially more important than individual brand because I don't want, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow or if I decide for personal reasons that I just don't want to do venture capital anymore, right? Which again, I hope I don't, but, but, but if I did, I wouldn't want Frontline to be caught or hanging on my brand. And I've seen that before where, where a VC firm, I don't want to start like throwing people under the bus literally or, or figuratively, but I've seen where, where a firm was too dependent on a person's brand and when they left for personal reasons, that really hurt that firm. And that firm has not survived, right, uh, as a VC firm, right? And so I don't want that for Frontline. If I build a company, and this kind of goes maybe to the, po- the kind of the, the crux of your podcast around like company building. If I, if I want to build a company and I'm building Frontline, I am not just building Frontline as a vehicle to invest in cool companies. I'm building Frontline to be a standalone vehicle, a company in itself that is building products to serve entrepreneurs. And our first product was one to serve early stage B2B entrepreneurs in Europe. Uh, and our second product is to serve later stage entrepreneurs in the US. And, you know, over time, I expect us to have different product offerings, right? And we might stop certain products if o- over time they no longer are valuable. And, 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 and so I am trying to build a company around serving entrepreneurs product offerings, right? And, and I want that company to survive and live well beyond my lifetime. And, and I think, again, not to keep pointing to Sequoia, but they've, they have had an amazing transition and generational change right back to the early days of Don Valentine when he started it. Up till now, there's been at least five or six different kind of CEO general partner, kind of managing partners of that firm. And, and so, yeah, I think that that's the sort of firm that I want to build for Frontline. Equally, if it was about me doing something before I retire and just saying, hey, I've got 10 more years before I want to stop working, doing a VC fund would be fun to do that. Sure, I'd make it all about me. And I'd double down on my personal brand i'd hire a pr firm to like get me quoted in msnbc and talking everywhere and stuff like that but we try to make sure that all of our pr is built around reinforcing the firm's branding not just that i'm great or that will's great or that Shay's great if i mean yeah absolutely i think you brought up sequoia i'm sure a lot of people won't be able to say how old sequoia is right it's almost 50 plus years right yeah exactly and and I completely get you that if you're looking for a generational brand name, it has to be the company or the product that you're building. 
it cannot be an individual. I think that one other really important thing when it comes to that is that, so that's on branding, right? But branding is one thing, but you can't have that sort of multi-generational firm unless you also back it up with the economics of the firm, right? And so, so what I mean by that is that as Frontline's partners will be transitioning out over time and new people either grow up in our firm or we hire new people in, those people get a lot of the economics of our firm. And there are, uh, and, and a great example, Don Valentine, again, to go back to Sequoia, who started Sequoia, he made substantial, I mean, I'm sure he's very comfortable personally uh, in his life, but, but he made substantially less money than some of the partners today do, right? Because he's given up all of his economics, right? To allow new people to mm. move in. And so I think that that's an important part of, if you want to have a firm, for any venture capital people who are listening, if you want to have a firm brand over an individual brand, you also have to back it up in the way that you manage the economics too. What is the future of venture capital in the next 50 years? What's funny is usually when people, because because venture capitalists often hear about all these exciting entrepreneurs, you, people always ask us, what are the trends of companies? Um, and And what I always like to say is that I don't think that I am a predictor of the future. Hmm. What I think that I am very good at and my team is very good at is picking people and picking people who I think can build great things. So we frequently invest in companies where we have big question marks about whether or not this technology or this market is going to be important in the future. But where we're, but the one thing that's unified across all of our investments is that we're really confident that these founders or entrepreneurs are the right people to build something. And so the reason I bring that up is that when I think about what's the future of venture capital, I don't know what the future is. And that's why our strategy is not around uh, supporting products for our investors. Our strategy is around building products for entrepreneurs. And so we're constantly evolving, hopefully, what we do offer. Now, what I would say is uh, 50 years is a long way away. Um, we, we do this strategic thing in Frontline where every year we sit down and we talk about kind of what are our core long-term goals, how are we achieving those and one of our kind of uh, guiding principles is that in 50 years, Frontline has to have such a great product offering that we don't even need to offer money and entrepreneurs will still give us ownership in their companies because our product offering is so good. So I think one overarching thing over time is that capital is, is now become a commodity. And so just offering to invest money is not as important anymore. It's not a competitive advantage, unless maybe you're writing enormous checks, but for the seed and Series A and Series B stage, capital is a commodity. And so you need to be constantly thinking about new product offerings. And so where that comes in that's interesting and you're seeing things now is companies like ClearBank, who are one of our portfolio companies, what they do is they've again looked and said, hey, venture capital is not suitable for all types of companies. And there is a a burgeoning group of e-commerce and SaaS companies who if we access their e-commerce engine or their payments engine, whether it's like a Stripe or whether it's like a, you know, a, Sh- a Shopify or, or Hybris or Demandware or something like that, they get enormous amounts of historical customer data that they can then analyze and decide, hey, based on this trajectory of this company, I will lend them 1 million to 10 million in capital. And they know that that's a very good investment because they can see the historical data on that company. And so they can make not only very quick decisions because it's a data engine that looks at all their historical data there, but also they're offering different sorts of financing to that entrepreneur that come with different terms. And their terms are very quick money. So in ClearBank's case, they can make a decision within 24 hours to lend up to millions, right? Very few VCs can make that sort of speed in timeline. Secondly, they're 
their lending is is at a fixed interest rate and therefore is effectively probably much cheaper than a VC's capital who takes equity, right? Now, obviously, it has to be paid back, but if you're a certain type of company, that sort of capital is actually potentially far more suitable than venture capital. And so I think what we're seeing is more types of companies offering alternative forms of capital. In a world where capital is more of a commodity, people are structuring that capital in different offerings. And I think that's quite interesting. I think also what we're seeing is more firms specialize. I mean, historically, VCs were generalists, and there was either kind of tech VCs or healthcare VCs. I think now what we're seeing is lots of people who are becoming razor-focused on certain areas. Like, I, there's a bunch of VCs that are they're just IoT-focused. There are a bunch of VCs I know that are just enterprise data science-focused. There are a bunch of uh, companies that we see that are just environment tech-focused, right? And so I think that's something that we're seeing. Um, Maybe one other trend is that, and I'm going to steal this trend from, there's, there's a guy called Uli Grabenwater, who is the, the kind of the head of EIF. So EIF is the European Investment Fund. They're actually, for people who don't or haven't heard of them before, they're the largest investor in venture capital globally. People don't realize this, but it's actually the European Union has an investment vehicle called the European Investment Bank. One of their vehicles is the European Investment Fund. And that fund is the largest investor in venture capital globally. Again, it's all focused on European uh, VCs, but it's invested in so many and so much capital into them that they are the largest. And so they have enormous foresight on what's happening in the industry and, and how it's evolving. And one of his kind of big vision points is that he thinks, I can't remember the exact timeline, but let's say in the next 15 to 20 years, he thinks every VC fund will be some form of impact fund. And he thinks that, and, and impact, again, a lot of people historically have seen impact as social entrepreneurs or charity. In reality, he views it as that technology and sciences are having such enormous impacts on the world for the better that he thinks that every fund will be structured around being impactful to society and, be, and also be measuring the impact they're having on society, on the environment, um, etc. And so that's maybe another trend that I probably see less of in the kind of my own firm focus, but he, it's something that he speaks a lot of and he, he is a, has a very big macro view of venture capital. Those are some very high level ideas, but as I said, I'm not somebody who predicts the future and 50 years away is a very long way. Hopefully one thing that will happen in 50 years if Frontline does it well is Frontline will still exist. It may be offering completely different products to entrepreneurs, but hopefully Frontline will still exist if we build the firm in the right way. When should a founder reach out to a venture capitalist or a venture capital fund? Well, I think in, in Frontline, we actually do like people to reach out early. But what I mean by early is whenever they're ready to raise capital. Hmm. So so we've invested in people who had, had just left their jobs within a week or two, right? So ideas on pieces of paper, they had only, on the term sheet, we had to say that you have to register a company and open a bank account before we can send the money to you, right? So... We, we have no problem investing really early in entrepreneurs. But one thing I do find that VCs often say is we want entrepreneurs to come to us as early as possible, way before they want to raise money. And I slightly disagree with that because I think it's, it's advice that is in the favor of the VC. So if you, if you have a company and you want to pitch it to me, but let's say you only want to raise money at the end of the year. If you come to me now, I'll collect all that information and I will then judge you based on the information that you te- you perform to that. And, and so you're giving me more power in that situation. Whereas if I meet you now and you're trying to raise money and I didn't meet you six months ago, effectively what that means is that you create the narrative right now on what the history was. Whereas if you're giving me multiple data points, 
the narrative is pre-created by those data points and that you might not live up to those data points. And so sometimes, even if you still perform well, if you had said to somebody you were going to perform twice as well as that, they might not see it so well. And it's about kind of setting expectations. Now, the caveat I give is that also VCs always give the reason for doing that is it's always good to build relationship with the VCs in advance. And of course, I've known you for years and we have a relationship. And so if you wanted to raise money now, the fact that we've built a relationship over years means that I know who you are and that makes sense. Hmm. But if you were trying to raise money six months from now and I only met you six months, six months is a very short time and we might have one maximum two coffees in that time or whatever or two meetings in that time. That That is not a lot of data points to really build relationship. So I think VCs say this to try and get access to deals earlier and to try hmm. and get more data points to make their better decisions. In reality... I don't think you build much of a relationship in six months. If you want to build relationships over years, fine. I think that's a true development of data points over time and understanding of somebody. But over six months, you don't get that. So if your plan is to raise in six months, what you should be doing over that six months is figuring out the best introductions and ways to get to those VCs, the best uh, VCs that you should be targeting, and not just VC firms, also individuals and firms, um, and that's not about branding. That's about their experience or the deals that they do. And then and then line all your ducks up, ducks up so that as soon as you do want to raise, you press the button and you build momentum because everything's happening all at once um, rather than kind of the slow, drawn-out building relationships over six months. That's something that I believe strongly and most VCs disagree with me because it's giving advice to entrepreneurs that works against us but works in their favor. So I don't know. Yeah, I'll let your listeners decide for themselves. The founders are your true customers. Yeah, well, and that's again to the point. If I'm, if I really want to build a five to ten, like if I'm going to be investing in you or anybody else, I'm going to be working with you for five to ten years minimum if we're investing at the pre-seed seed stage. So, like, I want to start developing a relationship where you realize that I'm not trying to give you bad advice to my advantage. I want you to trust me so that when I do give you advice for your company, you trust that it is honest transparent, unconflicted advice that I am willing to just create an offering for you because the better you do as an entrepreneur, the better I do. And and that's what I want. That And that's the best joint success, you know? 80% of your portfolio is pre-revenue. So what kind of data do you use to evaluate them? Yeah, and actually, and then, and then 50% of that is, is pre-product. So we don't even have a product to look at a lot of the time. Hmm. So, so when it comes to evaluating them, really for us, it's all about, or two things. So when you've got no revenue or product, there's no traction or tech really to look at. So what you're really looking at, the market and the team. So with the market, for us, it's much more confirmatory in that we want to make sure that the market exists or will exist, right? So sometimes the market doesn't exist yet, but it, so we have to believe that either it already exists and it's big enough or that it's going to be big enough because it's growing. Secondly, we want to make sure that this is actually a proper pain point for the target customers in this market. We often get people pitching us companies that are nice-to-haves and not must-haves. And you can still build an okay company with a nice-to-have, but you, I think it's extraordinarily rare to build a venture-sized company from a nice-to-have. And then and then we want to look at the competition to see who else is doing this, how competitive is it, how hard is it going to be to compete with the other people in the market. So that's that's on the market side, and we want to make sure that all that makes sense. That, and, then, and that's probably although it probably varies slightly person to person in the frontline team, that's probably about 20% of our opinion, right? And then the other 80% of our opinion goes down to the team and 
or or founder. And and really what we're looking for there is uh, many different characteristics. So actually, we had a team that came to IC, uh, sorry, our investment committee this week. And we, we gave them an offer. We haven't actually heard if they are going to accept that offer yet. I'll hear on Monday. Uh, hopefully they will. But what was great about that team was that it actually had four founders and they were all incredibly complimentary. So the CEO had really understand the pain, understood the pain point of the customers themselves personally. They also had a very strong product and strategy background. So we really believed that they could really lead the, stra- the strategy and product vision of the company because they understood the customer and their pain point. Then one of the co-founders had, had worked with that CEO in the previous job for like four years, almost every day. They loved working together. And that person's background is mostly oper- uh, um, operations, uh, finance, right? And a great, perfect combo, right? That person's the COO. Four, third fat co-founder they brought on is somebody who was in college with the CEO and has been a, a friend and worked together on outside projects as well. So again, they've worked together, so they know they work well together. They've known each other for years, so they understand each other. And this person's background is all sales and marketing in that target area, right? Mm. And then the final person they brought on is the CTO of the company for where the CEO and COO worked. Now, they weren't the CEO and the COO of their previous company, but they worked directly with that CTO of that company a lot. They know him. They know he has all the right skills to build what they need in that product, and, and he can build out a great team. So straight away, you have four people who have all been very successful in their careers, who complement each other who are very ambitious in what they're trying to build in a big market, that's really exciting for us. Now, one thing I didn't mention there, but that we also actively look for is self-awareness. And so self-awareness is something that you don't hear a lot of investors talking about, but we think it's one of the most important things in being a great leader and building a big company. And the reason why is that when you're at the, like the early stages of a company, it's easy to do very well and have no self-awareness, right? Mm. Because what is self-awareness? Self-awareness is a basically understanding what you are good at and more importantly also what you are bad at. And people who have poor self-awareness tend to hire people like themselves because they have achieved and therefore they think to achieve people should be like them. They also hire people who they tend to do what they're told and are more yes people and, mic- and therefore they micromanage them. Now in an s- early stage company, it's totally okay for the CEO to micromanage everybody, to hire people like themselves, right? But as your company scales, that starts to fall apart very quickly. Once you're at 20 plus people in your team, if, you've, if you're micromanaging people, you're not running your company because you're spending too much time micromanaging. Also, if you've hired too many people like you instead of people who are complementary to you, your team won't be able to do the different roles and skills as your company evolves. And so we often have seen entrepreneurs who have poor self-awareness really fall apart and build their teams very poorly so that, okay, they maybe might push and scrape their way to get a good Series A, but they really won't survive past that. Uh, And that's on a good day. Most of them won't even get to this Series A because their team will already be starting to show problems. So that's another thing. And again, uh, to use that example of that team that we saw this week, we saw that the CEO had incredible self-awareness because she was able to see, hey, here are things that I am not good at, right? She is not somebody who's super passionate about doing operations, finance, or sales. She's a product visionary type. And so she immediately brought on two people that she both knew she worked well with and were very complementary to her skill sets, like 
that ama- shows amazing self-awareness to us. And so th- those are the sort of things that we look for. But it's because we invest, as you pointed out, 80% pre-revenue, most of what we're looking at is the potential market and, and the early team or founder founders. Your firm, Frontline, has actually done a gender study uh, yeah. recently, and it was actually a lot in the news. So tell us about it and what key learnings did you get out of it? Um, so, so Frontline is a big believer in tracking data. So we track as much data as we can to help us improve our firm, to help us make better decisions. And, and so since we started eight years ago, eight, nine years ago, we have been tracking every single deal that we've done. And we track a bunch of data around that. So like what geography it's in, the founders' names, backgrounds, contact details, what they were raising, what industry it's in, how we source the deal, etc. So that was since the beginning. Now, uh, even why we reject a company, we track all of that as well. Now, about five years ago, or almost exactly five years ago, I was sitting on a panel discussion, and someone in the audience asked, I was, and I was talking about this data that we track, and someone asked me, oh, well, do you track gender in your deal flow, and, and what percentages of the, the companies are female-founded? And I said, actually, we, we don't. But I thought, I said, roughly speaking, it's probably around 12, 12%. I said that on the panel. What was interesting was that I am somebody who I don't like giving kind of waffly answers. Or if I, if I say something that I, I like, hopefully, having more factual or data-based answers. And so when I was asked that, I realized I didn't have a data-based answer. So I actually went back through three months of data. This was five years ago at the time to look at what actual percentages do we see? And I went through all the different pitch decks that we'd seen and took, took up quite a few weekends, but I, anyway, I did it. And, and the results actually pretty much pretty shocked me and the rest of the team. It wasn't around 12%. It was actually more like 5 to 6% of our companies had female founders. And I think the easy answer for us would have been to say, uh, because we also then looked at our portfolio and it also had 5 to 6% female founders. And the easy answer for us to say is like, oh, look, well, the market's showing us 5 to 6% and 5 to 6% is our portfolio. So it's not our fault. The, the funnel works right we're per se percentages on both but one of our one of our core values in frontline is 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 right over easy and so we really said okay that is the easy answer but is it the right answer and so we said look why don't we spend a few years tracking gender and trying to do things to specifically improve not just the pipeline not just the the the, the funnel in our firm but also to improve the pipeline and so we did a bunch of different things over that five-year period. And the reason why it kind of got some news recently is because we released all that data over that five years of data. And there were a bunch of interesting insights in that. But, but, but at a high level, the key message to take away was that lots of VCs say that the reason they don't invest in more female founders or any ethnic diversities, minorities of any kind. And we also track, we also track ethnicity now for the last three years. And hopefully I'll do a similar data research after we've been doing that for five years. But, but a lot of VCs say it's not our fault. It's, it's the market's fault. Not enough founders from minorities, whether it's socioeconomic, ethnicity, gender, ability, et cetera, et cetera, are starting companies. So it's not our fault that we don't invest in more. But I think what we prove, we're able to prove is that with different initiatives, we were able to massively increase the number we see in our pipeline. And so now, on any particular month, we're seeing between 20 and 25% uh, female-founded companies. And and that also, if you look at the last few years, that is now knocked on directly into our portfolio, where we now have 20, 25% of our portfolio founders that we're investing in ha- are, are f- female-founded companies. And and so it's not just good enough saying it's it's the market's fault. I think you can help doing things to improve the market. So that was the, the main point. But for any of your listeners, 
it was posted on Medium. There's a, a ton of other learnings and interesting insights in that. I would encourage them to check it out. Absolutely. Let's get into a rapid fire. Three questions, one word or one sentence. One Are word, one sentence. Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. That's going to be hard for me. I talk a lot. Okay. The hardest thing about your job? Saying no to lots of people. One book or one blog that has influenced you personally and professionally? One blog, I think Thomas Tungus. He's very data-focused. Frontline is very data-focused. So I've learned a lot about how to think about database stuff from him. Sorry, that's a longer than one sentence. Um, and one book, there's so many. That's so hard. There's no one book. Maybe the genre that I think is most important for VCs is reading books about how hard it is to start companies. So whether it's a shoe dog or the hard thing about hard things, I would encourage any junior or young venture capitalists who are still learning the industry to make sure that they are constantly reminding themselves how difficult it is to start a company, to make sure they don't lose that empathy with the entrepreneur who, as I've consistently said in this podcast, we see as our customer. So if you don't have empathy and understanding of your customer, you're not going to be giving them the right offering and winning the best deals. And your most favorite superhero? I'm going to be so boring. Uh, it's Batman, right? But the reason why it's Batman is because he doesn't have superpowers. And so I love that, that he doesn't have any superpowers. I mean, look, wouldn't it be great to, to be Superman or wouldn't it be great to be Spider-Man? I probably related to Spider-Man the most because he was a young character. And that's when I got into more comics and, and, and a lot of that sort of stuff. But Batman to me is, he's the, gives the possibility that anyone could become a superhero. Now, albeit he's like a super wealthy billionaire, but which is, which is maybe, a, maybe, maybe it's, it's probably more likely that you're going to be Superman and have all these skills and be a super wealthy billionaire. But but I like the idea, at least, that somebody who doesn't have superpowers can really try and make a difference. Thank you, William, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And sorry my rapid-fire questions were not rapid-fire answers. <laughs> my key takeaways from this conversation. Number one, why founders are the main customers of Venture Capital Fund. Number two, how one needs to think about building a brand. And number three, the importance of self-awareness and why it is an important aspect for leaders to build big companies. <laughs>